gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And this week we are going to be doing part two of verses taken out of context. Uh, what we've done is put uh, several categories of misuse to kind of organize what we're talking about. Last week we talked about prosperity gospel and word of faith. We talked about people making America as Israel and women in the church. So if you didn't listen to that one, check that one out. And then we're going to be working through a few other categories this week. So the one we're starting with, I think this right here is probably the most common one I see often. <laughs> that is promises and blessings out of context. Or you, you know how it goes, Rachel. They'll take a promise to Israel and all of a sudden that's a personal promise to me. Not that we can't benefit from, from these things, but we have to be careful how we use, use them. So oh, yeah. I'll let you, you start out <laughs> with our first one. Because this is a big one I... This, the, the I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, I remember like some old cartoon, you know, somebody's trying to open the, um, you know, the, the jar mm -hmm. of pickles saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I don't think that's what it means. Yeah. I mean, this is one, it, it gets used in all sorts of contexts. You can see it in um, sports contexts. A lot of um, athletes will, will reference that, you know, this, hard thing that they're they're accomplishing well i can do all things through him or through christ who strengthens me um and see it in you know someone who is you know trying to lose weight right and there's memory verses for weight loss or uh, goals for exercise or you know it, whatever the context is it gets used to mean whatever this thing is that i need to do i can do it because god strengthens me it's not, it's not wrong to say that God gives us the strength that we need to, to do the things in life that he calls us to, right? That he is our strength 
and that is what who we rest in, right? That that's that's true, right? But the context of the verse, if you look at Philippians four, uh, Paul is talking about uh, the things that he's going through, and that he has learned to be content in whatever circumstances. That's verse eleven. And so he talks about to be, he can go, he's learned to go without, or he knows how to live with plenty uh, in all circumstances, if, whether he's hungry or full, has everything he needs, or has been in need. He says he has learned that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, or through God who strengthens him. And so the purpose of the verse, the point of it is, is that whether he is in easy circumstances or times of blessing or he is in difficult circumstances in times of need and suffering that God is with him and God strengthens him so that he can be content in these circumstances and so that's that's the content or the context of the verse so for us we can absolutely say that I can do these things. I can live in times of want or in times of, of su- uh, suffering, times of blessing and times of provision. I can live in all of these times and be content with what God has given me because God is my strength. And I can think of times in my, in my own life where I'm really suffering and I don't feel like I have the strength to, to go on, to persevere. And in that context, this is where that, this verse has been an encouragement to me. Sure. Right. But it is not a personal promise that whatever difficult thing uh, I need to do today, that my that God will provide the strength for that, whatever that thing is. Um, yeah. Because it trivializes the verse. It trivializes the, the point of the passage and the scripture. Not that God doesn't bless us and doesn't give us strength and isn't with us through all of our difficult times. But we just have to be careful with making it um, something that it's not. Right. Like I can make this touchdown. Right. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens right. me. Exactly. So this next one, probably these, these top two really most common ones I see. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord's plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. This is one when we talked about word of faith last week, this is, this is one I've even seen used in that context. Look at the Lord wants to bless you in these tangible, um, financial, and other prosperous ways. Yeah, I mean, this is another one of those, uh, the verses that were many people mentioned. This is another one of them that, that several people said they would like us to talk about or recognize as one that's taken out of context. Um and and it is it again. It's it's uses a promise to say that um, applied very personally. So not just that that God is speaking to Israel here, or that God is uh, providing for and has a plan for His people. Um, it's used in a very individualistic way that God's plans are to bless his people individually um, and so we should hold on or claim that blessing because that's how it's used and it kind of reminds me a little bit also I'm skipping down on our list here but uh, Romans 8 20, 
28, mm-hmm. and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Mm-hmm. And this one gets misused a lot because... A lot of people think of it in terms of what I think is good for me. Right. So all things are going to work together for good in the ways in what I think is good. So financially or um, in in a relationship, you know, I'm in this relationship that's not going very well. Oh, now I remember that it's going to work together for good. Right. And uh, based on the entirety of scripture, we know that the Lord uses uses our suffering, for instance. So sometimes going through a trial or suffering is for our good. And this is what God knows is good for us, not what what we think. And it's not good in, I'm going to get that dream house that I want. Um, not that we aren't blessed in, in tangible ways. But or that husband. This is, right, or, or that husband. That right. lifestyle or, you know... Those perfect children that don't exist, you know, because children are actually <laughs> humans and sinners too, uh, as much as we love them, um, you know, or whatever, you, know, you fill in the blank. What What is this thing that I want? Well, you know, God promises that he has plans for my good and a future, and, he, and the verse says that um, he is going to, and all things work together for good, because that's usually, even there, that verse kind of stops there. People say, well, God causes all things to work together for good. I'm like, right. yeah, you got to keep going. <laughs> the whole passage. Um, the point with the Jeremiah 29 passage, God is talking to his people who are in exile. They have been exiled from the land because they were disobedient, and God told them they would be. So now they are in a foreign land. They are away from the temple. They are away from from all of the the sacrifices and worship that they were given, that they were supposed to do. They are away from the land that God had had blessed them with that was their inheritance. And his people through the prophets, God is talking to this people through the prophets and his people have been crying out. And the prophets tell the people that God is telling them not to be afraid while they are there, that they are still in his hand, that they are going to be there 70 years and that he will bring them out. And he tells them that he will restore them and he will gather them together and bring them back. And so it's a promise, a very specific promise to God's people. And absolutely, it does apply. I mean, if all, all prophecy is fulfilled through Christ, and through Christ, uh, the blessings come to, to his people. So we look at the fact that God has, through Christ, drawn all the people from all the nations together to be his people, all of his people from all these nations. He has brought us all together. And we have a a hope and a future coming for us when Christ returns and we will all be together again and everything will be blessings. But that is not a promise that we can hold here that right now that everything in our lives will always be good or pleasant. Right. Pleasant is especially. I mean, good can be taken different ways, right? That God. Exactly. Like you said, the sufferings that we go through are also for our good, right? And you know, that's a, you have to be careful how you apply that and how you say that to someone because that can be used in ways that are very harmful. But all of our life is ultimately God uses all of those things in a way that is a blessing for us, although they, it may feel very painful at the time. 
on the Romans 8 passage, all things being worked together for good, this is a good one to read the entire chapter. Mm-hmm. And um, there's some headings in in my online Bible, the first one being deliverance from bondage. And Romans 8 starts with, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it talks about for the law of the spirit of life in Christ to set you free from the law of sin. So it talks about that for a bit and then says however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of god dwells in you and it talks about that for a bit and then um if you scroll down a little bit well scroll because i'm i'm on a a, a device um, or flip pages if you're reading or flip, pages, flip pages right or go down to verse 18 it then and this is a this is actually a whole passage that's been so encouraging to me in suffering, but verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And, you know, so read the whole chapter because it's helpful. Then you, you go down to verse 26 and on the online Bible I'm using says our victory is in Jesus. So, you know, it starts out with, deliverance from bondage our victory is in jesus so um verse 26 in the same way that the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words so encouraging Mm -hmm. um but then we get down after all of this whole context and we know that god causes all things to work together for good to those who love god to those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You know, so re- read the whole chapter, but when you take that verse out of context and just say, oh, we know all things work together, so I'm going to get the job that I want, or the, the boy I, I want to marry, or whatever, that you got to look at this whole entire context of what's going on here. And so for me in the midst of suffering... You know, I know that all things are working together for good. That doesn't mean I won't um, suddenly be healed. Um, that I mean that I will be sud- healed suddenly because that's good. Um, but ultimately, and you see this through this chapter, my real hope is mm-hmm. is because of what Christ has done for me, God's love for me, saving me. I have a future hope that can't even begin to compare with my present sufferings and then the ver- the passage finishes and i love the whole chapter the passage finishes i do too about <laughs> it's one of my favorites how nothing can separate us from the love of god yes. of christ and so you know all of these things the difficulties the pain the suffering the things that we go through in this life the passage assumes that life will be difficult but that we shouldn't be afraid or fear that god has abandoned us through the difficulties but that no matter what the difficulties are, he will always be with us and we cannot be separated from his love. And so that's the encouragement there is, you know, our, our ultimate hope and the promise that we're, he is always with us. I used to listen to a guy on the radio. It was a political talk show. And so he wasn't even a Christian, um, but he was talking about how one time how he would make decisions, you know, and he was specifically talking about there's two houses we're considering buying. And I always ask myself, so what's the worst thing that can happen if I don't make the right 
you know, neither, you know, we can afford both houses. There's not a right and wrong there. You know, they're both in a great location. But what if I regret? So what's the worst thing that can happen? He said, well, I could end up not liking that house and we'll do what we have to do. We'll be thankful that we, we have a nice house and whatnot. And I always think in terms of, so what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, the worst thing I, I guess that could happen is, is death. And, and yet really that's my hope. And so in Christ, the hope that we have is, should be, even you, you even see it with the psalmist, like Psalm 13, you know, great distress, but I, it, it talks about at the end being thankful for the salvation that God has given uh, the psalmist, because that is our ultimate hope, whether we're suffering or struggling in other ways. And and really that's, you know, in all of these passages that we're talking about, about uh, promises or blessings that are being taken out of context, you know, all, all of the promises, all of the blessings are of Scripture are held in Christ, right? And so our promise, the promises that that scripture makes the prophecies and the and the things that we look to are blessings that we have because of Christ and through Christ and in Christ and so as long as we remember that it doesn't mean it already in the not yet it doesn't mean that everything right now will always be you know uh, sunshine and roses but that while life will be difficult we have an ultimate hope and we are always in Christ as his uh, as believers that we are loved and protected and cared for here and eventually when he returns or when he calls us home our suffering will end and we will have only blessing forever and so this is our hope this is the the promise these are the blessings that are absolutely true for us so i remember this one from when i was a teenager being spoken about in some and it's Matthew eighteen twenty. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And I think some people use it almost as there's some sort of special blessing or a greater chance your prayers will be answered. Or um, I don't run into this one as much. <laughs> Maybe you know which way it's taken out of context. I was thinking the same thing. I, I'm I'm not as familiar of it being used, although I have heard it in terms of like. You know, there's two or three people together, so you're right. Like, there's, so God will hear us because we agree on this, and so we're praying together on it. So then God will hear us, and it, it, that's not that's not the point, right? Um, we have access to God through Christ. None of us needs special mediation in order to be heard, uh, or for God to listen to our prayers. Um, and again, there is no. It's not like a, a formula with the genie that we get right and then out come the blessings um, or the things that we want. <clears throat> right. And that, I think that's kind of how I remember mm -hmm. it being used more so. Um, another one that people put, and I'm not exactly sure how this one's taken, maybe you know, but Psalm 46, 5, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Yeah, I, I don't remember the, where that one was asked. But, um, yes, I'm assuming it's the same sort of, you know, if if God is with us, then we won't be moved. God is our help. And it's true yeah. that he is our help. It is true that our salvation is absolutely immovable, right? Like that's <laughs> God will not take that away. Uh, but there's not a particular promise there that uh, that there won't be difficult times. 
it, well, in fact, Psalm 46, I actually have a, um, a, I know a musical version of this. So Psalm 46 starts out with God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this, we will go through troubles and God is our refuge and our strength throughout them. The Psalms are a great place to go if you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to, how to express what you're going through. Because just if you continue to read through, you will find a place where your, um, the way you're feeling or what you're you're coping with or dealing with is expressed in the Psalms. I have found in my own life um, that I'll be going through some specific thing and I'll read some Psalm that day. And, you know, I've read that psalm so many times before, but there's something about it in that moment. And, you know, I guess the Lord's using it in my life. Um, you know, even sometimes where I'll say to myself, wait, this just, I understand this so differently now. So Joel 2.25, then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So how is that one misused? It is often used, or the way I've seen it, is a, as a promise that when things are bad, when um, uh, when difficult circumstances happen to us, that God promises that he will make up for those with uh, and, and give you back everything that you've had taken away. Kind of like Job? Yes, kind of like Job. Right. And again, the the prophecies were there very specifically to speak to God's people about what was happening, what was going to happen, and how he promised to to bring them back and restore them, which is a picture for us of how God gathers us and restores us to relationship with him through Christ and promises a future where uh, we will be blessed. But that future is, is not, all of those blessings are not realized here yet. Uh, so another one is we, I see, a, there are a lot that are used, um, I, I think almost similar to this without understanding the context, but Joshua one, eight, nine, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that it is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, this is from Joshua 1. And uh, the headings are sometimes helpful to understand the context. But God's charge to to Joshua. I have seen this used a couple of different ways. Both in the prosperity Mm -hmm. um, gospel sense. But in Wesleyan circles... um, I've seen it kind of like if, if bad things are happening to you, it's because uh, you aren't obeying. And if you obey, then good things will happen to you. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's how it's used. It's also used, um, of course, I'm now singing along because there's a, a VBS song that uses this passage, which is fun because it's helpful to remember the verses, right? Yes. That's why I love learning scripture songs. <laughs> but... Uh, if it's taken completely out of context and you're told, you know, don't be, af- don't be afraid for God is with you wherever you go. 
it can be used in the same sort of way that the I can do all things through him who gives me strength kind of passage to say right. that whatever you have to go through, whatever you're doing today, you know, don't be afraid because, you know, God's with you wherever you go. And again, it is absolutely true that God is with us and that we have reason not to be afraid um, of the dangers that we face in life or the struggles and the trials. But it is not a uh, an individual promise given to us as individuals. It is a, a promise given to God's people. And specifically here, it had a very specific meaning to Joshua that God was with Joshua as he's taking over the leadership of God's people for Moses and that he's going to lead them in to take over the land. And God's saying, don't be afraid, I'm with you. In context, it means a lot more than, you know, than we, again, it's the trivialization that we see in a lot of the passages. Uh, and it fits a little bit with the next category that we're going to go through, just because um, somebody had asked me it, to explain Wesleyanism a little bit, just because I learned about it and um, in... Uh, going to Wesleyan Bible College. So Wes Wesleyans are Arminians, you know. Oh, actually, I have a funny story about John Wesley. He actually was influenced by Martin Luther. And there's a, a Christian history podcast that did like a five-minute um, episode that was really good on the story of uh, Wesley going into a church. And I think it was Luther's, com they were doing a study on Luther's commentary on Galatians, I think it was it. So it was kind of ironic because of what happened with Wesley later in his life, some of the things he taught. Although, as is the case often, I think um, a lot of people took his teachings further than he intended them. Um, so one of the things that Wesley said was, the Lutherans are very strong in the gospel, but weak on sanctification. And it's because of the view of sanctification that he had this entire sanctification. But Wesley, in some of his writings, uh, it didn't sound like he thought that there were lots and lots of people who were entirely sanctified. Um, I know one thing I read where he said, well, there's, you know, a, an older woman that lives however far away. I, I think she's entirely sanctified. So I think that's where a lot of Wesleyans take it further. I mentioned, I think last week when I was in Bible college at this Wesleyan school and most of our students went to Nazarene churches and um, some small, very conservative Methodist churches. So not like United Methodist, but very small denominations that I'd never even heard of. And so they'd have revival week and you could come up and get saved come up to the anxious bench. If you don't know what the anxious bench is, you can go read about that, but come up to the, and get saved or come up and be entirely sanctified. So this is a, we see this in different traditions where there's a second blessing. They believe in some sort of second blessing. And that's basically what it is. I, and I can't remember if I told this, but I was learning about this and there was a, a missionary lady and her husband on furlough and they were helping out at our school for the year. And she was telling me how she had been entirely sanctified for three years. And I was like, well, that ain't ever happening to me because I think some pretty awful things <laughs> that alone. <laughs> it's, I can't, you know, I think things I should not think. And she said, Oh, that's not sins. Those are mistakes. And it really, that experience really caused me to understand that they were really downplaying ultimately downplaying just the weight of sin and even 
um, everything that is a sin in our life. The, the daily struggles with sin, whether it's um, my thought life or sinning because I'm angry and, you know, things like that. Our motivations, right? So even the good things that we do, if they're done with, with poor motivations, right, undermines them being good things, right? And that's, and that's where we, you know, you see uh, in the in the Gospels when Jesus is teaching and he's telling them, you know, you, you've heard, you know, don't commit murder, but I tell you, if you, you know, have anger in your heart towards your brother and you say these things like you fool, right, that that is murder. Right. right. And so Jesus takes all of these ways that that people thought they were obeying and says it's harder because it's more it's it's not just what you do but what you think and how you think it and what you say and how you say it all of this is involved with sin and it rightly drives us to our knees to say what can we do to be saved because there's no way i can not sin mm-hmm. and the only answer is in him and that's that's the point we're supposed to get to um with that but to to go back and and move away from that again to as long as i'm not doing anything outwardly too bad Right. Then, then I'm okay, or like right. like Jerry Bridges talks about uh, respectable sins, right? The things that you yeah, do that are not not so bad, right? But all of those are sins, and all of them are affronts to God's justice and holiness. And you know, we need to recognize that all of that is what Christ paid for. And you'll find you. I mean, I think most people know within like Arminianism, you have different extremes. You'll Some Arminians think you can lose your salvation, some don't. I mean, I'm explaining this because it's kind of context for how the next verses are, are misused. But some, some of this theology, like Charles Finney had the worst, worst theology. For instance, he said, whenever he sins, he must for the time being cease to be holy. This is self-evident. Whenever he sins, he must be condemned. He must incur the penalty of the law of God. And he goes on pretty much. You got to every time you sin, you got to get resaved. You know, which would be a right. very extreme um, version. And he, one more thing that Finney said. Um, he said that the Reformation formula, simul justus et peccator, or simultaneously justified and sinful. This error has slain more souls. I fear than all the universalism that ever cursed the world. Whenever a Christian sins, he comes under condemnation and must repent and do his first works or be lost. So, and they get they get these beliefs by really taking verses out of context, mm. ultimately. Yep. And, you know, if, so Finney was an absolute heretic. So, that, I mean, there's a, I don't have it in front of me, but in a systematic theology, he says something like, um, Christ's death could only justify himself. I mean, that's just right. outright heresy. Well, I mean, there's no there's no assurance there, right? If, you, if it's all about what no. you do and how you have to keep it up in order to, to stay right with God. Um, I mean, that's the, the hamster wheel that you're stuck in. Um, and, mm-hmm. and the hoops. It always reminds me of... Uh, Horton's putting amazing back into grace. We're talking about, you know, we're not supposed to be jumping through hoops. and That's not what God calls us to. We're called to grace uh, and salvation uh, through Christ. And it's such a, yeah, it's so much more comforting 
Yeah, when we think about the imputation of Christ's active obedience, not just the forgiveness of sins, which is wonderful, but also the imputation, it's um, it's encouraging, and there's so much hope there. That's my hope, not that I'm going to stop sinning. I should say that Wesleyans, mm-hmm. there's different extremes, um, where I think that Finney would have had some similar theology and taken it to a completely different extreme. Um, most of the Wesleyans that I know they don't believe entire sanctification is necessary for salvation. You can be saved. But they do believe that certain sins will cause you to be lost. So, um, we'll go through some of these verses. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So, this is one of the verses that's used right here. So, if you're not obeying um, enough, and I, I've never figured out exactly how much is necessary, but if you aren't, um, you're just not going to enter heaven. And that's a scary, a scary way. I mean, and I, I grew up, you know, my, my parents always uh, taught, you know, the, the doctrines of grace and taught Calvinistic teaching, even when we were in Baptist church. But I was around a lot of very Arminian teaching here and uh, growing up, and I remember being being very afraid of uh, of judgment, being afraid of standing before God and, you know, what what would come out in my life and whether or not he would find me, um, you know, whether I would be with those that are, are saved. And it, it was later on in my life that I realized, looking at it, that you know, that's a misunderstanding of the passage. It's not what it's talking about. And those of us who are who are believers who are covered by by Christ's righteousness. Uh, we have nothing to fear from judgment. We have nothing to fear from uh, the judgment seat. Right, all of that has been covered by Christ, which is not licensed to sin and, and to be, um, you know, to live however we want to. But it means we have no fear and we have nothing to be afraid of, and that's an important thing. Luke eighteen. This is one I see misused a lot, primarily. Um, out of ignorance mm. of law gospel distinctions. But Luke 18, we have the story of the rich young ruler. Um, and in verses 22 and 23, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich And I should probably read a little bit before that, because the rich young ruler had come to him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? Okay. There are people that call this passage gospel. That that Jesus is saying, if you want to be saved, you need to sell all you have, give it to the poor. That's what you need to be saved. That's not the point of this passage. (laughs) If you continue on with the passage... You know, when Jesus, he, after the rich and ruler leaves, and Jesus is, the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? Right? They're looking at, if he's done all those things, how can we be saved? And, of course, the answer is that, you know, with the things that are impossible with people are impossible with God. Right? That he is the one. God is the one who saves. And you know what Jesus is doing here is not saying, not pointing out a plan of redemption. That if you do, if you keep all the commandments, and you sell your stuff, or if you live a life of poverty, 
uh, and give everything you have to charity, then you know, then you have can be saved. And it's not what Jesus is setting up. He, Jesus is teaching this young man that he just thinks that he has kept the commandments, right? And showing him that he has, you know, something that is more important to him that something that he is holding on to, right, that he is putting his faith in. And Jesus is calling him to put faith in him, in Christ. One thing I think that is so important to understand, especially when we're talking about this passage, because I think it demonstrates well why law and gospel is distinguishing Mm -hmm. is so important, is what happens is um, even people in our Calvinistic circles will use this and call this a gospel passage. So when you don't distinguish between what is law and what is gospel, you make law part of the gospel. You then make works part of the gospel. And then when you talk about sola fide, you're talking about uh, a completely different thing. And and, uh, we talked about on the Lordship Salvation episodes, but um, the historic definition of faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. And um, they'll change it to knowledge, assent, and a determination of the will to obey. Almost using this passage, yeah. And Federal Vision, too. It's the same thing. It's a similar thing that we see. Where the gospel comes here is when Jesus says that the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. That is is where the gospel comes in, because that is how we we are saved. Up to that point, he is driving them to that question, well, then who can be saved? Which, you know, that's what Paul talks about, um, that the law is not, the law is not what, um, is not faulty, right? It's not the law, the fault of the law, that no one can be saved by obeying it, right? If we could obey it, we could, we could be right with God. But the point is, we're the problem because we can't obey it. And because we can't obey it, we cannot be right with God on our own actions, then we have to be um, be saved through Christ and by faith alone in Christ alone because he is the only way of salvation since we cannot possibly save ourselves. So this is a big one. I think it's a really big one. Um, James 2.24 You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And see, see, we need, we're justified by our works. There's nothing wrong with saying works are necessary for final salvation. Oh yes. Um, I have a uh you know, R. Scott Clark sometimes on his blog, Heidel blog, will publish quotes from different people that he finds to be helpful. And he has he has a whole article to a link in the episode notes, but he has this quote from R.C. Sproul that says, I'm convinced, and it's specifically on James 2.24, I'm convinced that we don't really have a conflict here. What James is saying is this, if a person says he has faith, but he gives no outward evidence of that faith through righteous works, his faith will not justify him. Martin Luther, John Calvin, or John... John Knox would absolutely agree with James. We are not saved by a profession of faith or by a claim to faith. That faith has to be genuine before the merit of Christ will be imputed to anyone. You can't just say you have faith. True faith will absolutely and necessarily yield the fruits of obedience. And a good thing to look at, I think, is Mm -hmm. Westminster Shorter Catechism on Sanctification. So we know that sanctification is a work of God's free grace where we're dying more to sin and living more to righteousness because we have saving faith, because we're united to Christ, because he is sanctifying us. And, you know, it shows that we have genuine faith. Um, although we have to be careful, too, in um, and not become right. fruit inspectors. We don't know where everybody is um, 
in where Christ, where yep. God is working. Um, and it's important to realize that you know this is not at odds with what Paul says that we are justified uh, not by works but by faith, right? Paul and James are speaking in different contexts in different ways. When Paul's talking about we are justified by faith alone, he is talking about we are made right with God. We are we are uh, saved. We are given Christ's righteousness, and we are considered holy because we have been justified by faith alone, and our works play nothing in that. And when James is talking here, in the context that he's giving it, he is talking about when you're in a group of Christians, and people who are there claim to be Christians, but their works, what they do, denies Christ, you can say, we don't see evidence of your faith in your actions. And this is a justified uh, justification of being justified in front of the church and the rest of the believers by your works, uh, and not just by claiming faith alone. And so the difference here is the audience and uh, the, the way justification is being used. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one, I think everyone oh, yes. has, has seen versions of this. Um, one of my own family members oh, has yes. the artwork one. based on this verse. <laughs> uh, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. And I've, okay, so first of all, there's artwork. If you haven't seen it, it has, you know, a Jesus standing at a door knocking. And I remember hearing this, you know, God is standing at the door of your heart knocking, just waiting for you to let him in. Yeah, and that God's a gentleman. Right. He would he waits patiently right. and knocks at the door and he just waiting for you to open that door and let him in. I don't know how many altar calls I have sat through in yes. my life. Um, I can sing all the verses that this is, you know, I, and I say this as having been raised Southern Baptist. Typically, we know the first and last verse of hymns. Right. That's all we sing first and last. But there are a few hymns that are the altar call hymns and we know all the verses because you keep singing to give people time to come up. So, yes, there's a handful of, of hymns that I know very well, but that's the passage, and that's how it's used, and that's how people are encouraged in this idea. And I see it in a lot of, of lit popular literature talking about, um, you know, that, that he, Jesus would never, or God would never, um, you know, go against your will or um, make you choose him right? he's he's just waiting waiting for you to accept him and yeah that's not what this passage is about i was just thinking <laughs> how many times i've heard it <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> and i'm not we're, we're 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 kind of chuckling it's not that we're making fun or laughing it's just it's the how often it comes up and and how how many how much hangs on this verse and how much is this verse is used to teach, and it's just, it, it is a lot. It's used a lot. Yeah, I used to attend a church on Sunday nights. It was like the cool place to go when I was a teenager, and they would do the altar call every, every night. I mean, not every Sunday night, and of course, um, we'd sing, um, like, Just As I Am 25 times, and 
and some pretty music waiting for everyone to come up. And the pastor would say, you know, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. He's just waiting for you right. to let him in. You know, First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen. And this one I've seen discussed in, in recent years a lot. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Oh, yes. Um, this one's used in a couple different ways. One way that I see it a lot is people say, God won't give you more than you can handle. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that's not what it says. <laughs> it's not what that says. It's not what that means. We often have more than we can handle because it drives us to Christ. And it shows us that we need him. And it reminds us that we are not, that we are not God and that we are not in control, right? So very often in our lives, we are going to face things that, that on our own, we cannot handle it, right? And it, God has not given it to us because he's like, well, I know this, that she can handle it. That is not what's going on. And that's not what this verse means. Right. Um, it actually makes me, <laughs> speaking kind of forcefully, it makes me very irritated to hear it used that way because it's, it, it hurts people when they hear that. That this horrible, terrible thing, yes. trial and ordeal that you're going through as well, he wouldn't give it to you if you couldn't handle it. That's not true. That's one of the one of the things that that we could also do a list of things people say that they right. think are Christian, right. like that one. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And then I think of the passage I don't have in front of me in Corinthians that says they despaired to the point of death, and it talks about. So they would rely more on God than right. uh, on themselves. They 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 had more than they could handle, and I'm pretty uh, sure. And it helped them to rely yes, on I'm the Lord sure more. I'm pretty sure Job handed, had more than he could handle. I'm sh I'm yes, sure pretty the sure. women who watched the crucifixion that that was more than they could handle. Right. The the church the martyrs in the church death and watching their family members killed this is i can't imagine what they went through um how else have you heard it it's used any other way i you know i've seen it in discussions um on some of the mm -hmm. things going on with christians who have same-sex oh. attraction and talking about okay what does this passage mean what does temptation mean oh yeah things that's like true that. and i don't know if it's necessarily I don't want to say out of context so much, uh, but rather a debate about maybe what this actually means. Right. In the passage, it, it is talking about uh, not being idolaters, not doing as Israel did, um, and that God promises to give us a way of escape in temptation. But it also tells us to flee from idolatry, to... Um, it talks about avoiding things that have been sacrificed to idols, not because the idol means anything, but because we shouldn't partake with idolatry. And it has a lot to do with how we are in, in cultures around us where the people around us are not believers. But um, I think it's, we should be careful how we apply any verse, and particularly when we take a single verse out of context and try to make it say more than it says yeah that's a good good thing to remember matthew 7 1 this one <laughs> do not judge so that you will not be judged judge not and it just stops there yeah. judge people not use it that's right. it 
That's the whole verse. And right? yeah. it, and people like to use this one a lot, you know, if you're judging. And yet, when we talk about looking at all of Scripture, we have other passages where we really are called to judge. So that's it's not saying you no. may never judge anyone or anything. Um, but there is a, a, if you are going to judge, you will be judged right. also. And it's talking about, uh, in the context there, it says, in the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So it's talking about us being gracious to others. It doesn't deny, like in the next verse, when you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own. It's not saying that there isn't sin or something that needs to be addressed. It's just saying, first deal with what's going on that's the log in your eye, right? And then you can talk to your brother and help him. But it is absolutely not, or it's absolutely about um, judging rightly and judging graciously and not being harsh with, with our brothers and sisters. But I mean, we're called, we're called to judge and to judge rightly. And there are a number of places when we are told, as you said, that we are, that we are called to judge. First um, Corinthians 6, 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Right? And that has to do, that's talking about, you know, why we are discouraged from taking each other to court instead of dealing with matters um, between each other as Christians. Which is not to say that there isn't a place to take things to the courts, but it's talking about um, how we treat each other as believers. And again, uh, there's there's just a lot more going on in these passages. But yes, the, the way that this verse is almost always used is people say, judge not, you're not supposed to judge. And I'm like, that's, that's not what it says. I've seen this even when you have people that are not mm -hmm. Christians mm -hmm. that um, will say, talking about things like homosexuality or sexual immorality, well, you're not supposed to judge because it says mm -hmm. do not judge. <laughs> what else does it say? I don't know. I just know that verse. Right. I just know the verses that help me prove my point. So, Jeremiah, popular today here, 29.7, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And this is the same passage as the other Jeremiah passage uh, 29, that we said earlier. You know, it's talking, it's God talking to his people and telling them, you know, what they are to be doing while they wait for, for him to act and bring them back from exile. And what's interesting is this passage, this verse, has become the go-to verse for uh, urban ministry. So if you're going to do uh, inner city church ministry, or even for some that uh, prioritize m urban ministry over, over rural or suburban ministry that we're supposed to be in the city for the city because of this verse, right? And of course, I think we should have ministry in all areas, right? Farmers in rural areas yes. need the gospel, just like people living in inner city need the gospel. We all need the gospel. So, you know, I, I don't think we need to take a particular verse and say, well, God's saying go to the cities, right? But that is that is how this is used, and that's the the purpose of the verse is to say that God has placed His people where they were um, for a time, and that while they live there, they shouldn't be trying to get back to to Israel. They shouldn't be worried about it. They should live and serve God where they were until He brings them home. And that, as a verse for us who live today 
um, as modern Christians in exile, right? We are not home. It works for us, and it is a verse for us to say that God has put us in a place wherever we are and has called us to serve Him faithfully in the years He has given us until He takes us home. And that is the absolutely great application of a verse that is very helpful, but is not a verse that says we all need to go to do inner city ministry. Not that it's bad to do it, but it's not necessarily what we're all called to. First Corinthians 6.19 is one I remember a lot being talked about when I was a teenager. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And the way I have seen this uh, used is, in there's some people that take this to a great extreme. In your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so care for it. And that means, you know, our family doesn't eat any sugar because that's not caring for the, for the body. And, you know, no drink, don't drink, don't smoke, don't eat unhealthy, that sort of... Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, exercise, diet, eat well, eat... Um, what is it? Clean, eat clean, right? Uh, and again, there is there is nothing wrong if that's the way you want to live, right? But there is nothing particularly righteous in the sense of makes you right with God in choosing to do those things. It is This is not what that means. Right, and we sh- we should be wise, but there's right. also Christian liberty. The verse very specifically is about not. Uh, it's about sexual immorality and about not having, um, not doing things with your body that would be inappropriate sexually. That's it's very specifically about that in that passage, and I rarely see it used in that context. It's much more, much more often about what we eat or whether or not you should drink alcohol or smoke or various other applications. Right. I'll read just a little bit that comes before it. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that that's the context that's being talked about there. So this last one uh, that we're going to talk about today, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, uh, abstain from every form of evil. From the King James, we get abstain from all appearance of evil. And I know this is one that gets used uh, to say that you can't, you shouldn't do X, Y, or Z because it would look bad, Right. And I'm not saying we should do things intentionally that we know will come across as as um, offensive, right? That, that's not what I'm saying. But this idea that, oh, we can't do that because, you know, because we need to avoid the appearance of evil. And I saw a lot of this in the discussions um, around, like, the, the Billy Graham rule, the Pence rule, uh, about Amy's book on uh, why can't we be friends. It's like, well, it says that we're supposed to avoid all appearance of evil. And, you know, well, yes, we should be wise in our decisions and we should do things appropriately in ways that don't call into question um, that we're believers and that we're living in ways that are appropriate. Um, That's not really the, the purpose of this verse. In, I think that the new, new American standard and some of the other verses that translate it uh, abstain from every form of evil gets into 
more the gist of what the passage is about. It's it's the end of this uh, of the book of Thessalonians is on Christian conduct is the header that I have. So we're being you know Paul is telling how we should live with each other, how we should pray for each other and encourage each other, um, being thankful and rejoicing and praying without ceasing. And then he ends with saying, you know, hold what's good, abstain from all all form of evil. So it's less to do with uh, making sure that things don't look bad, right? And more to do with being sure to um, to reject all the all the things around us that are evil, and to hold fast to, or to do what is good. And then, of course, the promise that the God of peace will sanctify us entirely. So, and I think you used a good example, Rachel, of how this is taken to an extreme. Um, I love the subtitle mm-hmm. of Amy's book, you know, Avoidance Isn't, isn't Purity. Um, and there's, uh, I mean, I've seen this taken to weird extremes, that, mm-hmm. that passage. We have to. Um, well, like, for example, that, that someone needs a ride and they won't give a woman a ride because, you know, it, it would look mm-hmm. bad. And I'm like, I mean, I understand being careful, but there's there has got to be a point at which we... We use common sense, and we worry less about what people think or might think about our actions, and whether or not we are honoring each other as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in our actions. Or, or loving your neighbors yourself. I remember they, it was common when we got married to you know have all these rules set up, um, and I remember we didn't have cell phones back then. My husband comes home one night, and he... He would take the the bus to uh, a parking lot that um, you know with his coworkers to a parking mm-hmm. lot that um, where they'd all be parked and yeah and there was a you know a young a young woman that he worked with and um, her car wouldn't start now this is before most people had cell phones and you know so he came home and he said you know I gave this woman a ride home her car wouldn't start there was no one else there it was just us and you know i can't imagine and i don't even know that there's a payphone in that lot oh i'm sorry this might look bad i'm gonna have right. to go now you know and then leaving her to to who knows what would happen to her alone in a parking lot where a car right. won't start and no way to call anybody to help right yeah i mean right it's late it's dangerous right and right. not in a great neighborhood right. you know and again, you have to use your wisdom, but it's, it, and I think you're right, Amy's uh, subtitle, Avoidance Isn't Purity. We should seek purity, um, not avoidance. Well, I hope this is a, a good encouragement to our listeners. Uh, even, uh, one thing I've noticed myself, you know, at different points in my life is that I would hear certain passages that people would use out of context. I remember uh, as a teenager, uh, I, different passages uh, that like bear one another's burdens, for instance, and going, and then when I'm reading that chapter one day, all of a sudden looking at it in context, wow, I didn't realize the context that it said bear one another's burdens, and it's a, I think it's a good reminder for all of us to make sure because so there's a, there's so many instances um, where things are taken out of context, but we hear hear various things and we repeat them without sometimes even understanding ourselves 
the context of the passage. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us, and we'll see you next week.